Well, good morning. And let me take a moment to welcome our West Campus here this morning. We're so glad you're with us as well. Last week, we began a new series that we've called The Walking Dead. Because all around us, at work, at home, even at church, are people who are walking and talking. They're seeing, they're hearing, and yet they're dead. They've never been made alive in Christ. They've, they've never become spiritually alive. And, and they think they're okay with God. They, they think they're alive. They think they're on their way to heaven. But Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. As we opened up this series last week, we discovered the key to life. And the key to life is, is found in 1 John 5, 13. That's a verse that each and every one of us, regardless of who we are, regardless of where we may be in our spiritual journey, this is a verse that we all need to learn. Listen to what John says. He said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John says that each and every one of us can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have eternal life. And the key to that is belief. Belief in the name of the Son of God, Jesus. But here's the problem. Most people are defining belief the wrong way. They, they define belief as knowledge. I know the facts. I believe they are true. Therefore, I believe. But, but we need to understand that biblically, that's not what believe means. Biblically, belief means that I respond to Christ with my mind, with my emotions, and with my will. I, I respond to Christ with my entire being. With my mind, I know the essentials of the gospel. I know that I am a sinner. I know that I need a Savior. I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sin, rose from the grave to defeat sin and defeat death. I know that. With my emotions, I am convinced that I need a Savior. The, the New Testament uses the word convict. I am convicted of my need for a Savior. But then with the will, I make a commitment to Jesus as the Lord of my life, the, the master of my life. But the question is, is there a way that I can know that I've done that? Is there a way that I can know that I've responded to Jesus with, with my mind, with my emotions, with my will? Are there any signs that prove that, that there is spiritual life, that I've moved from the land of the dead, the walking dead, to the land of the living. And that's what the book of 1 John is all about. In the book of 1 John, John gives us the vital signs that prove that we are alive. Now, let me remind you that these vital signs are simply indicators. They, they don't cause life. They simply report life. They are useful tools to, to help us monitor our spiritual health. If they are present, then there is spiritual life. But if they're absent, regardless of what we think, how we feel, the Bible says 
that we are spiritually dead. That's why it's important for us to monitor our spiritual health. That's why it's important for us to to look and see if these vital signs are present in our life. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Now, I want you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to 1 John chapter 1. And this morning, we're going to discover that first vital sign. That first sign that gives evidence that there is spiritual life that we have been made alive in Christ. And in honor of God's perfect Word, I want you to stand with me as we read this passage. 1 John chapter 1 Beginning in verse 1, you can either follow along in your copy of God's Word or there on the screen. Listen to what it says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the Word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to you to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. No, did you get that? Don't miss that. If we claim to have light and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And don't miss that. He said if we say that we're without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and and he will forgive us our sins, and he will purify us from, from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. So he says if we if we claim to walk in the light, but we still walk in darkness, we're lying. But then he says, if we claim that we have no sin, we're saying that he is a liar. And his word has no place in our hearts. My dear children, I I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your perfect word. Now use it to speak to us. Mentally, emotionally, and volitionally, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's be seated. Now, as we unpack these first verses in the book of 1 John, we discover two very clear truths. The first speaks of the supremacy of Christ. The second truth speaks of the sinfulness of man. Now, the first truth is the sinfulness of Christ. And notice John opens up this epistle, this letter, 
much like he opens up his gospel by, by focusing on Jesus. Jesus was the focus of John's life. In verse 1, he calls Jesus the word of life. And in the gospel of John, John says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible that John also wrote, John says he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself, and his name, Jesus' name, is the Word of God. So in John's gospel, in John's letter, in the revelation of John, John tells us that Jesus is the Word of God. But what does that mean? What does it mean when when John tells us that Jesus is the Word of God. Well, well, you know that, that words communicate. Words communicate what we think. Words communicate how we feel. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus is God's communication to us. Jesus communicates the love of God and, and he communicates the holiness of God. He communicates the grace of God and he communicates the justice of God. If I want to know what God is like, all I need to do is look at Jesus, and I know what God is like. And in these first four verses, John reveals to us two clear truths. He tells us Jesus is fully God on one side, and then he tells us he is fully man on the other. He is 100% God, and he's 100% man. He is totally God, and yet he is totally man. And that's a mystery to us, but that's the mystery of God. He begins by talking about Jesus' divinity. And notice what he says. He said, that which was from the beginning. Notice, Jesus didn't have his beginning in Bethlehem. He, he didn't even have his beginning at creation. Jesus has always been. He is the eternal God. Co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with God the Father. Paul said it this way in Colossians chapter 1. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. And that doesn't mean that he was born. It doesn't mean that he was created. It means that he is sovereign over all creation. By him, all things were created. So he tells us, first of all, that Jesus is the divine God. But then he deals with Jesus as the, the, the man. He deals with Jesus' humanity. He tells us that God stepped out of eternity and became flesh and blood. The eternal God was born as a baby. Listen to what John said. He said, we have heard him, we have seen him, we have looked at him, we have touched him. You see, John wants to make clear to us that, that we understand that, that Jesus was not simply some spirit. Jesus was flesh and blood just like us. There was a heresy being taught in John's day called Gnosticism. It said that, that all physical matter was evil and therefore Jesus could not have had a physical body. Gnosticism basically denied the incarnation that, that God became man. But John wants us to know that this Jesus who walked on planet earth was a man and this man was 100% God. In John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says this, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body. The mystery, 
God appeared in a human body. And then notice what John says about Jesus in human form. He says, we have heard him. Can you imagine sitting at the feet of Jesus? Can, can you imagine being one of those disciples and sitting around that campfire at night talking about the deep issues of life? Now that word heard in the Greek literally means an action that began in the past, but it continues in the present. What John is saying there is we heard his words when we were with him. But get this, his words are still ringing in our ears. We can still hear them to this day. And then John says we have seen him. John was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He was able to see Jesus perform miracles. He was able to see Jesus touch those people that were unclean. He was able to see Jesus lift up those people that were caught in sin. He was able to see Jesus. And that word looked at in the Greek, it literally is the word that we get our word theater from. It it means to gaze upon. It, It means to focus on. I mean, imagine if, if we had cameras back in Jesus' day and, and those cameras could follow Jesus around like so many of the reality shows today. And John is saying, we heard his words. We have seen him. And then he said, our hands have touched him. Literally, we rubbed shoulders with Jesus. Jesus was a real man. And then John says this, an eternal life is wrapped up in him. In John 17, verse 3, in his gospel, John says, Now this is eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, John is telling us that eternal life comes from knowing Jesus. And although you and I haven't had the privilege of, of hearing Jesus like John did, and, and although we haven't had the privilege of walking with Jesus like Like John did. John says that we can still know him in an intimate way just like he did because of the testimony that John gives us. And isn't that amazing? Even though you and I weren't there to hear the words with our physical ears, even though we weren't there to to see the, the acts with our physical eyes, John says you and I can know Jesus In the same way that he knew Jesus. So John begins by talking about the supremacy of Christ. It's all about Jesus. But then he moves on to the sinfulness of man. And I want you to understand it. And write this in the margin of your Bible. Put this on your note sheet. This is the first vital sign of spiritual life. My attitude toward sin. Now, it's important for you to note that that John doesn't begin with man when he talks about sin. He begins with God. J.I. Packer said this. He said, no one can see what sin is till they have learned what God is. No one can know what sin is until they have learned what God is. And notice what it says in verse 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Don't miss that. John says, in God there is absolutely no darkness whatsoever. Now, in the Bible, light refers to 
to holiness, the holiness of God. And, and darkness refers to sin. And, and John is simply saying that God is completely holy. God is without sin. You see, sin is the opposite of everything God is. Now, in the Greek language, that word no darkness is a double negative. And in the Greek language, a double negative strengthens a truth. Now, in our language, a double negative is bad grammar. But in the Greek language, a double negative is good grammar. And it's simply enforcing what is being said. And so what John is saying is there ain't no darkness at all in God. And though we may not speak like that, the Greeks spoke like that and it enforced the truth. You see, before I can understand my sin, I've got to understand God's holiness. And here's the key. When we truly enter into God's presence, we will become acutely aware of, first, His holiness. There ain't no sin in God and our sinfulness. We are filled with sin. The Bible says it this way in, in Romans 3, For all have sinned and, and all fall short of the glory of God. You see, there are none of us who measure up when we compare ourselves to God. Each and every one of us will fall short. That's what Isaiah discovered. In Isaiah 6, he was in the temple worshiping God. And, and the Bible says that he went into the very presence of God. And when he went into the presence of God, there were two things that overwhelmed him. The first thing was the holiness of God. The second thing that overwhelmed him was his own sinfulness. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 6, verse 5. There is no hope for me. I am doomed because every word that passes my lips is sinful. And I live among people whose every word is sinful. And yet my own eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When he came into the presence of God, he realized God's holiness and his sinfulness. The same thing happened to Peter. When Peter discovered who Jesus really was and how holy Jesus was, Peter said, it says this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, get away from me. I am a sinful man. The same thing happened to the Apostle Paul. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You see, the fact is to know Jesus is to know our own sinful condition. You will never have eternal life until you become acutely aware of your sinfulness and God's holiness. Now for me, that happened when I was nine years old. I grew up in a Christian church with a father who was a pastor. And so I knew the Bible growing up. But at nine years old, for the first time in my life, I became acutely aware that I was a sinner. And I needed a Savior. And with a broken heart, as a nine-year-old boy... I asked him to forgive me of my sins. And, and as best I knew how, as a nine-year-old boy, I gave him my life. But listen, it didn't stop there. You see, I am more aware of my sin today, 44 years later, than I was back then. 
Some have this idea that the more spiritual we become, the less we see sin in our own lives. But the exact opposite is the truth. The closer we get to the light and the brighter the light shines in our lives, the more we see the dirt, the filth, the grime, the sin in our lives. And though that sin may change, because when we're more immature, those sins may be more sins of action that, that the world embraces. And as we become more mature, we, we, don't, we don't see those anymore because we've been given victory over those areas. But, but as we get closer to the light, we, we see those attitudes that are so wretched in God's eyes. Whether it's, whether it's self-righteousness and pride, whether... Whether it's false humility, whether it's a judgmental spirit, whether, whether it's materialism, whatever it may be, we begin to see these things and we become acutely aware of our sin. Now the problem is there are some people today who never ever get to that point where they see their sin. John says this. He says there are some who claim to be saved who continue in sin. In verse 6, John says this, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not live by the truth. John says that if we profess one thing, we profess that we're a follower of Jesus, and we practice something else, we're a liar. We may say that we belong to Jesus, but we don't really belong to Jesus. And John says there were some in that day who professed to walk in the light, but by practice they were walking in the darkness. They were living in sin, which the Bible says God has called us out of. He's called us out of darkness into the light. In Colossians 1, it says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. In 1 Peter 2, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Unfortunately, it seems like in our world today, there are many who love the darkness more than the light, and yet they say that they're followers of Jesus. Jesus said this in John 3. He said, this is the judgment. That light is coming to the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil, listen to what it says, hates the light. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. You see, to become a Christ follower is to say, I love you, Jesus more than I love my sin. Can you imagine? Can you imagine me going to my wife and saying, I want to be married to you, but I want to have my other lovers too? Can you imagine me going to my wife and saying to her, I want you to know that you're number one out of all of my lovers. I can tell you what she would say. She would say, I don't want to be number one. I want to be the only one. And I want you to know today that God says the exact same thing. When we openly embrace sin, we are saying that we haven't committed our lives to Christ. You can say that you know Christ as Savior and Lord, and 
And if you haven't forsaken what he's forbidden, the truth is you're lying and you're deceiving yourself. You can't love Jesus while embracing the things that he died to set us free from. Paul dealt with this as well. In Romans 6, he said, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that God's grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Listen very carefully. If you're saved, your desires change. You now desire holiness and obedience more than you desire sin. And if you're still living in darkness, something is wrong. A Christian can sin, a a Christian can stumble, a, a Christian can blow it and mess up, but a Christian will not walk in sin, a Christian will not live in sin, a Christian will not continue in sin. You see, if your attitude towards sin hasn't changed, you're still dead. But then John says, there are others who cover up their sin. They deny that they have a sin problem. You see, one of the first evidences that the light of grace has come into my life is, is that my eyes have been opened towards sin. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that the first sign of God's grace coming into our heart is we become acutely aware of our wretchedness, our sinfulness before God. This is what John said in, in verse 8. He said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, he says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our heart. You see, the walking dead may admit, well, I'm not perfect. They may say I've made some poor choices. They they may even say I have some flaws, but the walking dead don't admit they're sinners. They're spiritually dead because if they do, they're admitting two things. They're admitting, one, they need a savior. And they're admitting, too, that they're accountable to God. People say things like this, well, I'm not such a bad person. But the fact is, none of us can ever be saved until we realize how bad we really are. And if you're trying to sugarcoat and and, and soft pedal around your sin, then chances are you've never come face to face with a holy God. Someone wrote this about sin. Man calls it an accident. God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a blunder. God calls it a disease. Man calls it a chance. God calls it a choice. Man calls it an error. God calls it an enmity. Man calls it a fascination. God calls it a fatality. Man calls it an infirmity. God calls it iniquity. Man calls it a luxury. God calls it leprosy. Man calls it liberty. God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. Man calls it a mistake. God calls it madness. Man calls it weakness. God calls it willfulness. I've literally talked to hundreds of people over the years who who have refused to acknowledge their sinfulness, their wretchedness before a holy God. But understand, until I really understand the seriousness of my sin... I've never been saved. I'm still dead man walking. So are you denying your sin? Are you covering it up? Are you refusing to admit it? Are you soft peddling it or candy coating it? Because if you are, you're dead. So some continue in their sin. They're dead. 
Some cover up their sin. They're dead. But then John says a Christian confesses and forsakes their sin. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to purify us from all our unrighteousness. Now, to confess is, is much more than to admit. It means that we see our sins the way God sees our sins. It means to be brokenhearted over our sin. It, it means to hate our sin. It means ultimately to turn from our sin. Solomon said this in, in Proverbs. He said, he who conceals his sins does not prosper. But he who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And you know what will happen? When we see our sins from God's perspective, we will turn from our sins. Look at, look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son purifies us from all our sin. You see, when we know Jesus, we know the light, then all of a sudden God will begin a purifying work in our heart where he will begin that process of not only forgiving our sins, but even removing sin from our life. Now, you may say, well, Rocky, I've done that. I've, I've confessed my sin. I've forsaken my sin. I've, I've asked the blood of Jesus to, to cover my sins, but, but I still struggle. I, I still struggle with sin. I fall at times. Am I saved? Well, John deals with that. Listen to what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, my dear children, I write this to you, so that you will not sin. And so just stop there for just a second. Before we go any further and we try to get a safety net, we need to understand God's plan for our life. I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. What are those last three words? Will not sin. What's his plan? That you, let's say it, will not sin. That's what God wants for you. God doesn't want you to sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, John makes it clear that, that God's desire is that we don't, sin and understand we don't need to make excuses for sin we don't need to go around saying well everybody sins that's a cop-out because jesus said your goal your desire should be to per be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect that's what you strive for and through the power of the holy spirit living in us understand i never have to give in to sin let me say that again, because you need to hear this. With the power of the Holy Spirit living in me, working through me, I never have to give in to sin. Whenever I sin, it's not because of my sin nature, because greater is He that is in me 
than he that is in the world. Whenever I give in to my sin nature, it's because I have willfully chosen to give in to that sin nature. But if I do give in to that sinful nature, he says that there is a provision, and that provision is Jesus. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our every sin. And if we confess our sin as a believer, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. So how are you with the first vital sign? I mean, is there life? Well, well, let me ask you some questions. I want you to think through each of these questions as I ask them. Question one. Do you realize you're a sinner who falls short of God's holiness? Question two. Do you understand that your sinfulness has separated you from a holy God? Three, do you see your need for God's forgiveness and cleansing? Four, does God's spirit convict you when you do sin? Five, have you confessed your sin to God? And do you regularly confess your sins to God as you fall short? Next, are you willing to forsake all known sin? And then the last question. Are you desiring to walk in the light? Are you desiring to walk in holiness? And if you can answer yes to all of those questions, then I want you to know that you're probably saved. And I would say you are. But if you can't answer yes to all of those questions, then your faith and your spiritual life is suspect. And if it is suspect, then you need to deal with it today. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Today. William Gladstone was the prime minister of Great Britain in the 19th century He was also a great Christian. And one day a a young man came in to speak to Gladstone about his future, about the young man's future. And as the two sat together in the room, the young man on one side of Gladstone's desk and he was on the other side, Gladstone began to ask the young man what he was going to do. And the young man said, well, I think I'm going to probably go to Cambridge or Oxford and pursue a good education. And Gladstone said, that's great because we all need a good education. And then Gladstone said, what then? And he said, after I graduate, I think I'm probably going to try to get a job in a law firm, gain some practical experience, because you're not going to learn everything in college, and you need that practical experience. And Gladstone said, that's wise. I think you should do that. What then? And, and then the young man said, well, I'd really like to serve in government, and, and um, one day I'd like to be in the House of Commons and involved in governing the world and the affairs of Great Britain. And Gladstone said, man, I appreciate that because we need good men in government, men who are dedicated to a cause. But then Gladstone said, what what next? What then? And the young man said, well, one day if I've done a good job and, and I've become popular in my own party, I would love to perhaps serve as the prime minister to sit in the chair that you're sitting in and, and, and lead our entire country. And 
Gladstone said, that's great. What then? And he said, well, after then, I've, I've been keeping a journal, and after then, I would probably write my memoirs because I've probably learned a lot, and, and there are things that I've learned that I, I think would be good, would be beneficial to other, other people. And Gladstone says, that's great that you have a desire to teach others. What then? And the man was a little befuddled. He said, well, I, I guess after then, I'll die. And Gladstone said, you're probably right. What then? And the young man said, well, I've really been busy preparing for the future. I haven't really given much thought to that. Gladstone stood up. And he said, young man, you better go home right now. You better pick up your Bible, get on your knees, and prepare for the future. Because before you ever prepare for the future, you're not prepared for tomorrow. Jesus said it this way. He said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, here's what I know. If I can't answer yes to all of those questions about sin, I don't need to wait. I need to get on my knees before God right now and beg the holy God of all creation to forgive me. And I need to give my life to him. I want you to bow your head with me and close your eyes. And if you're here this morning and you've never given your heart, your life to Jesus, when, when we looked at those series of questions, you could not answer it. Yes, I've done that. Yes, I've been convicted of sin. Yes, I've asked Jesus to forgive my sins. And when I sin today, I ask him to forgive me. And when I sin today, I'm convicted. And yes, I want to live a life of holiness before God. Yes, I want to forsake all to follow him. If you can't answer yes to all those questions, then I want I want to encourage you today to really give your heart and life to Jesus. And you can do that by, by praying this prayer. It's not saying some magical words. It's, it's not repeating some formula. But it's honestly, contritely, seriously humbling yourself before God. Acknowledging your sin. Turning from your sin. And giving your life to Jesus. If you want to do that this morning. Then I want to encourage you to pray this to our Father right now. Dear God. I know that I'm a sinner. And I've been living life my way. I know that's the truth. I know it doesn't matter what I know in my head. I've never turned from sin. But today, I'm acknowledging my sin. I'm turning from it. And right here, right now, I'm asking you, the only one who can, to forgive me and save me. I'm giving my life to you. I'm going to follow you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. And by the testimony of your word, thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name.